It is delight to be with you. But I have to be very upfront and honest. As I've interacted with many of you, some of you have real funny accents. <laughs> but uh, I've just adjusted to it. Uh, Gil is my name, you know. And I like to say I'm an African by birth. I'm an American by circumstances. And I'm a Christian by the grace of God. And that's where my citizenship really is. Now, having an accent and coming to this country some 30 years ago, we have some interesting stories. You know, English is my second language. And so, I was, up, was in this country about one year, and I was invited to speak at a church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And being a graduate student, I was speaking, and I wanted to tell the people that I'm also working at night. And I said, yes, to support my wife and my children, I'm also moonshining. <laughs> I said it three times. The horror in the faces of the people led me to believe they don't want me to work. And so afterwards, one of the elders came and said, Brother, did you mean moonshine or moonlighting? So uh, I hope today... When I say moonshine, you'll understand what I mean. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you will take the words on my heart. Make them understandable to everyone here. I come as one beggar to other beggars and say, Lord Jesus, feed us till we want no more. And God's people say, Amen. Lord, I want to see you. Seeing myself, my mission, and my Messiah. And I want to say, really? If we can see ourselves, our mission, and God as he sees us, isn't that, in a sense, like getting on that bathroom scale on December the 27th? Yes, we want to see something, but do we like what we see there? In Luke 18, verse 41, we read, As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And let's say it together. Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. This is God's word. May we hear what he has to say to us. If we have to see as God sees, if I want to see my mission, I think the first thing I will see is that God is doing a new thing. It's about new wineskins ever since Jesus came. You know, 
We read there in Matthew 9 verse 17, he said, Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the wineskin burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Friends, the old model is not working. The old healthcare model is not working. The past 30 years, since everybody said, we're going to do community health, more than $580 billion have been poured into healthcare in sub-Saharan Africa alone. And some of you might have attended in 2008 in Kampala, Uganda, when the World Health Organization gave results and three things came out. The first thing was, the disease burden is bigger than ever. There are fewer healthcare workers than ever. And the third, a very scientific observation, we're in a bigger mess than ever. So we can either keep on doing the same old, same old, and have the same old non-results, or we can say, God is doing a new thing. It's time for the church. There's new wineskins. This abandoned hospital which you see here is in the Congo. Somebody put a lot of money into that. And as you can see there, after 18 years, it's a shell. Somebody put $4 million into a building named after them, but nobody thought about how can it be sustained. Just think what could have been done with $4 million in community health or else used. That is the old model. It doesn't work. There's a whole literature out today describing to us why this doesn't work. That literature uh, deals with uh, various things. Many of those have been written by um, people that used to work for the government, for the World Health Organization. And they say it is a big failure. This last one, Making the Blind Man Lame, is a Christian physician. He's Afro-American and working in Kenya. And he said what struck him is that with the health care we give often on the field, we make things worse. It's not working. You know, what I can understand is we get the concept. You know, there's certain things we know, but we cannot apply it when it comes to our mission work. In San Clemente on the pier, the following sign is there. It says, please do not feed the birds. Feeding creates a dependent population that is a potential health hazard and makes a costly mess. I speak as an African, I speak as somebody from the emerging world, so no reflection on us. But isn't that what's happening? A costly mess. We're not helping. We live in a time, God is doing something new. And now here is the big danger. Some people begin to see it and they see only a bit of it, and all of a sudden cliches abound. And people talk about this, and yes, everybody's on the bandwagon. We want to rescue sex slaves. We want to get out and help orphans and vulnerable children. We want to help people with HIV and AIDS, and on and on the list goes. I saw this sign in a restaurant in South Africa. Give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day. Teach a man to fish and he'll sit in a boat and all day and drink beer. We laugh about it, right? 
And we came with our pies. Oh, let's teach a man to fish. Guys, it's not any more time to teach a man to fish. How do we bring him to the fishing pond where the fish are? That's the issue. We've got to get off this bandwagon of saying things. We have to understand that God is indeed making something very new. That's why when Corbett and Fickert wrote their book, When Helping Hurts, they nail they hit the nail on the head. And if you haven't made your reservations for next year's conference, make sure you do because they're going to be here. Because helping does hurt at times. Do you see the new mission picture? It's a new thing God is doing. But there's something else. There's a new generation leading. Isn't it amazing? A person is entrusted to fly an airplane worth $50 million dollars. But back in his home church, they don't trust that same person to handle the collection plate yet. I don't understand it. The leaders of today is 35 and younger, and we've got to make room for them. Those are the people that can change the world. It's a new generation. It's a new world. God is doing something new. And in case you've forgotten, a person who was 33 years old founded the church. God is doing something new, and there's a new generation leading. And people like myself want to declare, and I hope others in my age bracket will say the same thing. Our backs are there to stand upon, because the church of Jesus Christ has to emerge. God is doing something new, and He's using new leadership. He's doing something new. We're a global community. We're not anymore from this or from there. A week ago, I was in Taranople, Ukraine, speaking at a medical conference for the Christian, Missionaries, uh, Christian Medical Students Association. About 500 students attended. Guess what? Two-thirds of them were either from sub-Saharan Africa or Nepal or India. Get this. Africans, Nepalis, studying in Ukraine and praising God. The world is changing. We're global. We're not local or global anymore. It's a new picture and we've got to think that way. It's not anymore getting my butt on a plane to go and do some mission work. No, right where I am, God wants to use me. And yes, God can call you to a different place too. Are you aware that God is doing a new thing? Do you see as God see that? But secondly, do you see people as God sees them? In Matthew 9, 36 to 37, and I was tempted to take this out since our brother spoke about it last night, and I thought, no, God wants us to really think about this verse. Read this one with me, will you? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. When I pray, Lord, I want to see my ministry as you see it. Do I see people as he sees them? He had compassion on them. Sometimes we can see people as fundraising opportunities. Oh, I've got to take this photo. This one will really break people's hearts. 
And I've got to ask myself, is my heart broken? Or am I getting so used to it? Do I see people as Jesus see them captive by the enemy? Or do I see them as wicked people? Do I see some people I want to help, but others are just bad and I don't want to help them? I was confronted with this in 2002. Uh, my own personal research concern today still is the intersection between the theological, biomedical, and cultural aspects of the AIDS pandemic. And at that point, I was in-depth researching the virgin myth. This is that terrible belief that if I have sexual intercourse with a very young person, I may be healed from this dreadful disease. And so part of what confronted me was five men who sexually abused a nine-month-old baby. And as I talked with the surgeons who had to work on this poor little baby, he said, I'm tired of sewing up kids. And I thought of those five men, and I said, Lord God, let fire from hell come, or from heaven come and destroy them. And then a voice told me, I died for them. Can I see the most depraved person as a person that may be hanging on a cross and saying, Father, Jesus, remember me when you're in paradise? Or do I see people in categories, those I want to minister to, those I don't want to? Those have a lifestyle that, oh, I don't want to think about that even. Do I see people as Jesus see them? Broken. And my friend, maybe you haven't seen yourself lately. Because you see, you see Gil here, but there's three people before you. There's the one I am. The one you see. And the one I want to be. And isn't life but a journey where these three become one till we see Jesus face to face? Do we see people as Jesus see them? Desperately in need. We talk about the 1040 window. How, when Jesus looked at the 1040 window, what does he see? You know, um, on milk cartons and on other forms, we often see missing children. You've seen this, haven't you? And recently somebody reminded me of the fact that so often we look at this and what do we do? Oh, in the mail I put it in the trash can, right? But that child belongs to a father and a mother. And if that was my child, I couldn't sleep. I would be out there, I would mortgage my life away and say, what can we do to find this child? It's my family. Do we see lost people as, why is the statistic, in the trash can? Or do we see them as the Father sees them crying? Lord, I want to see my ministry as you see it. Then it's not statistics. Then it becomes people. Do I see the emerging countries and the people of the emerging countries as created in the image of God? Or do I have a deep-seated prejudice that I know better? It was once in West Africa where I met a person and he couldn't write or read. 
And my initial inclination was, well, probably not bright, until I figured out he could speak nine languages. And because he's from an oral society, he could recite anything we, re- we said with afterwards word perfect. Much more competent than I am to understand his situation, his problems. Much more intelligent. Do I see people as God sees them? If I want to see my ministry, do I see the church as Jesus sees the church? You know, the church was Jesus' idea after all. I came from an NGO background and it took me some time to really come to grips that it's the church that God wants to use. And as I committed myself to that and understanding that there's a need for organizations too, but I've neglected the church personally and I had to work on that. It's full of problems, but Jesus died for it. He loved it and he gave, he gave his life for it. But here's another thing. Do I see the church as the bride of Christ But more and more, I think, people begin to see the church as a vehicle to be used. You may have heard the terminology civil society. Anybody heard that? United Nations use it all the time now. I mean, on uh, on December the 1st, on AIDS Day, I'm speaking in Beijing, China, on a government-sponsored meeting. And during that meeting, they want me to talk about the civil society, how the civil society can help with AIDS prevention and care for those suffering from AIDS. I told them, do you understand who I am? Saddleback Church. Yeah, fine, we want. We want to learn from the civil society. Here's my question. In our desire to work with churches often, is it possible we can begin to prostitute the church? Begin to use the church to fulfill our means, our goals. Let's use the church to be that. The church is to be a distribution place. I believe that fully. The church is the answer. The church is the hope. But am I using the church or am I coming in step and working with the church what God wants to do through it? Narrow distinction. Sometimes I find myself, my relationship with the church is almost like I'm married to the church. But it's like a marriage where people live in different bedrooms. How do I view the church? See, when Jesus looked at the church, he says, my bride, my hope. I want to work through you. Do I see it that way? Do I see the church maybe as that group waiting to be empowered? And you can say, well, it's a bunch of dead bones. You haven't seen my church, Gil. Right, but what happened in Ezekiel 37 when a prophetic voice began to speak to that church? A whole army rose up and the Holy Spirit blew in them and the army came out to be. Yes, as we heard earlier, this is the time where God wants to turn audiences into armies. He wants to turn spectators into participators. In the work we're doing in Western Rwanda, and I'm not going to talk too much about this now. Breakout sessions will go more in depth into it. Karanji District in the Western Province, we are partnering with three hospitals. And as you can see there, that's a part of that district. In that district too, there are 21 clinics we're partnering with. 
So if you want to bring transformation, you said, okay, let's equip the clinics and the churches. But then, as you go a little further, there's more than 450 churches in that same area. So if you really want to impact a community, where do you begin? And we said, it's the church. That's the body of Christ. And as we launched there some five years ago, we started by listening, listening, and listening. We listened to what the people had to say, who they were. We went to churches, all kinds of churches there. Some of them were uh, intense. Others were more formal structures, uh, nice big brick buildings, all the time taking notes, absorbing. That's my wife there, taking the notes. And we just listened about 70 hours of listening Another little church where people say, this is where we worship God. Then we took all that information and we said, how can we now begin to help them solve their problems? And we begin to train them based on the information they gave us. And the key was to say, we're going to deal with this like with a problem tree. There are fruit and roots of problems. So often we deal with the fruit. We've got to deal with the roots of what the problems are. And as we start getting into them and they start getting into doing, working those root exercises, we saw them taking ownership. Hours were spent wrestling with the physical problems they identified in their community, spiritual problems, and they explained it to one another. After about a six-month period of the 28 who started, 23 graduated, and president, at least the mayor was there, and health officials were there, government officials, church leaders. And those 23 got their diplomas. You can see it's a diploma that told them, you now are certified health, community health worker. We gave them shirts. And on that shirt is a nice logo that says, I'm a community health trainer. And here's the next thing. They got their training manuals, translated for them, got a bag, and they were ready to go. And the first thing they did was with their pastors trained 250 church members in a three-month period. And God is raising up an army. Ordinary people. People who said, we want to serve God, trained in basic health problems of their areas, evangelism and discipleship, and going from house to house. Each of them serving about seven houses, homes, on a monthly basis, bringing hope and life and new beginnings for that area. Friends, that, do you see the possibility of two billion followers of Christ worldwide being mobilized? If we can address things at a grassroots level, we can address 80% of problems, medical problems in this world. And not only that, it opens the door to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ also to these same people. And by the way, this is what peace is about. What we talked about earlier, peace, the five big Problems and the five answers to peace. That's what peace is about. That's why we say peace is the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel. Read it there with me. It's not simply that evangelism and social involvement are to be done alongside each other. Rather, through peace, our proclamation has social consequences. As we call people to love and repentance in all areas of life. And our social involvement has evangelistic consequences as we bear witness to the transforming grace of Jesus Christ. How do you view the church? Jesus looked at his church and says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it.
Do we see it that way? Do we understand it that way? One last question about the church for me is this. How do we view the church? How many of you knew that Sunday is IDOP, International Day of Prayer? Praying for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted. About 100 million Christians worldwide are suffering persecution daily. Do we think about it? I often think the body of Christ has a spinal dysfunction. Because if I stand here and somebody take a hammer and keep on hitting my foot all the time, and I smile and keep on talking, you'll say, Gil, you are sick. Yet the body of Christ is suffering, dying. And we go on as nothing is wrong. When Jesus looked down, he see the martyrs. Do you see the martyrs? Just where you work, do you pray for them? Support them? Maybe God is calling you to be one of them. Do you see the spiritual dimensions of your ministry? When God looks at my ministry, he sees it's a spiritual warfare. The struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not that surgery to be performed. It's not that tooth to be pulled. It's a spiritual battle. It's an intense battle. How much of my ministry, how much of your ministry will continue on tomorrow if the Holy Spirit left planet Earth? How many churches will continue to grow as always? Continue to have conversions? When I began to think about this the first time, it was very convicting and I thought, Lord God, this is a hard word. But God says, I look at my church. You want to see my ministry as I see it, and I see you do a lot of things, and I'm not in it. Do you see the importance of prayer? You know, I read in the book of Acts, the church prayed for 40 days. They preached for 10 minutes, and 5,000 people came to know Christ. We plan for 40 weeks, we pray for 10 minutes, and we go bananas if five people come to know Christ. Something is wrong with the picture. In our desire to be on the bandwagon with a whole awakening for justice in the world today, which is wonderful, and we should fan that flame, but we should be careful not to lose the spiritual dimension of it. Because when God looks down at it, He says, it's a spiritual battle. And it's not by word, it's by the power of my Holy Spirit. It's the power of my blood that I can set people free. That's what changed things. It's so easy to begin to say, well, He can help us. The powerful one can set us free. And very soon we're in a moralistic deism. And the distinct message of Christ is not anymore part of what we do. Wall Street Journal about six weeks ago ran an article and the the heading was, We can be good without God. Men and women, may we never be good without God. Because when God looks at my ministry, He sees it as a spiritual battlefield. When we say, I want to see you, Lord. I want to see. May he give us eyes to see our ministries as he see it.
do we understand? Do we see also what's working and what's not working? When God looks at our work, he sees perfectly. He sees my mistakes. He sees my failures. Am I willing to see my own failures? It is so easy not to do it. You know what we often do? We take the bow and arrow. We shoot the arrow. It hits the wall. I take my paint. I put a bullseye around it. And I say, hallelujah, bullseye. Praise God. Do we have baseline studies? Uh, What we do in our work... uh, We came up with very specific baseline studies and saying, this is where we are, this is where we want to go. Do we work on that? Have we things like that that can help us? Uh, Do do we see failures in the ways we teach and train? One of the big problems today has been the training, for instance, in HIV and AIDS prevention. People use methodologies that's not effective. Unless you engage people through self-discovery, it doesn't work. Take, for instance, what we do with cigarettes. Uh, I took the following picture. I saw it. Smoking may reduce the blood flow, flow, flow and causes impotence. Wow! Smoking causes f- fatal lung cancer. Okay, I shouldn't use this. Smokers die younger. If you don't get the message, it says, smoking Kills And what do we do right next to it? We create a little kiosk where people can smoke on an airport. And don't we do that with other things? Do we think if we say something, people hear? No. Our pedagogy, the way we teach and train, is very important. Do we understand that just like in the time of Jesus, people still want to see him? We read in John 20, uh, 12, verse 20 and 21. Jesus, uh, we read, Now there will come some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with the request, Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Today, friends, when God looks at your ministry, my ministry, he says, people want to see me. They still want to see me. Is that the driving force in what I do? To help people see Jesus. They don't want to hear about him. They want to see him. And you and I are the people that can show him to him. Lord, I want to see my ministry. Lord, I want to see myself. Often we are blind. Have blind spots. A dear friend of my pastor, Stratton, in Rwanda, was such a person. He had a blind spot. And watch this video. It's a very short one. As he had to deal with his own blind spot and start seeing as Jesus sees. I used to tell my congregation to help people who are sick. I thought that was my only job, to preach about compassion. But what if true compassion is to put your legs in someone else's shoes? To walk where they walk? I did not have this kind of compassion before. I started to talk about AIDS at church. I started visiting people in their home. I just show up. And I cannot do this alone. 
This is Deborah. Deborah is a volunteer from our church. God touched her heart. There are many from our church like Deborah. The body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus. This man lost his wife several years ago. She died of AIDS. Then he got sick too. Now, he's at home and cannot work. He's dying, but his children do not know it. What will happen to the children? The children, they are HIV positive. They don't know it yet. What do I say to them? But I can be here, touch them, pray. Then it happens. Their face will change. You see some joy in their eyes. It is good. The hope comes again. I did nothing tangible to help them. I was just there. The church began to show this kind of compassion. Those who are infected are afraid, so we held their hearts. Those who are infected feel alone, so we visited them. Those who are infected are confused, so we cancelled them. Those who are infected feel rejected, so we accepted them. We loved people who were hurting. A few years ago, I did nothing. People in my own community were dying. They were dying every day. They died alone. They died afraid. They died rejected by the church. A few years ago, I thought preaching was enough. That was my compassion. But if we don't do something, who will? If we don't show God's love, who will? If we don't show up, who will? We all have our own ministries. But if God holds that mirror up to us and I see myself as he sees me, what is it that he will reveal to me? What will he reveal to you? In myself, I've discovered unintentional cultural ignorance. Not only thinking I'm better than other people, but judging. In this picture, what do you see? Grasshopper, right? So in the USA, what do we call it? It's a pest. In China, it's a pet. And in northern Thailand, it's an appetizer. We forget we are square heads and we are working with round heads. Whether you're a square or a round head, you're one or the other. And square heads have to go into round head territory. And here's the thing. Some people change and some don't. And if I don't adjust, 
I can never fit in. God wants us to see ourselves so we cannot do harm. That's part of it. It takes humility to say, Lord, help me. I want to see myself as you see me. Our prejudice can be very deeply hidden. I was nine years old. I grew up in South Africa. When I say South Africa, what comes to your mind? Say it. Apartheid, right. My skin was the right color, so I was okay. I was nine years old, and where we lived, there was a road coming down, and those wonderful Africa thunderstorms, when they come, and it rained, that street became a river. And I was standing there looking at that wonderful river this afternoon after it rained, just loving it. And there was a man of color coming with a bicycle, trying to get through the water. And I'll never forget, as he was going, the water became too strong and the front wheel, with a little box in it and his food in it, fell. And his food fell off, he fell over, he sat there in the water, and I saw a big man crying. I realized he lost all his food. What do I do? Nine-year-old, I say, come with me. Took him to my house, told the lady in the kitchen, put food in the box. He had more food than he had before. He was very grateful. And he came to me and he said, Donkey Maybasi, thank you, my little Lord. Now that alone is wicked. Here I am a little chubby little kid and this big man calling me little Lord. What do you think I did? You know what I did? I put my arms back my back. I said, thank you, go. Why? Because I grew up in a house where if a person of color touched a cup, we don't use it again in the living room. It goes to the kitchen. They were just not like us. The prejudice was so deep-seated. I grew up and as a young believer... As a young adult, I thought, well, I don't like apartheid, but you know, my color is the right color, it's okay. And then I became a Christian. God mercifully saved me. My whole life was changed. And I come to a point, wow, apartheid is a wicked system. But you know what? It took me another three or four years. We had to leave the country until I came to the conclusion, wait a minute, apartheid is not a wicked system. Apartheid is sin. And I had to repent of it. And as God changed us and cleansed us, and I felt like breaking free from the past, there was a price to be paid to because in a sense you lose your whole heritage. But I know today there's only one race, and that's the human race, right? And even the American Anthropological Society agree that there's only one race. That race is a social construct. And there's only one race. It's the human race. Our prejudices. Do we have it? We read in Revelation 3.18, I can counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. So you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put in your eyes so you can see. Lord, I want to see. 
as we conclude, can I ask you, we've looked about how big is, how does God view my ministry? Lord, I want to see myself. But Lord, I want to see you. I want to see my Messiah. How big is your God? Because you see, the size of your God will determine the extent of your ministry. Do you see him for who he is? Do you see him as the great God who's there when you think everything is lost, like we read in 2 Kings 6, verse 15, when everybody was hopeless and Elijah prayed and said, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see that the Lord opened his servant's eyes and he looked and he see the hills full of horses and chariots of fires all around Elijah. Do you see you're not in a hopeless situation, that you're not fighting for a victory, but from a victory? How big is your God? How gracious is your God? Do you understand you've been forgiven? That He can forgive anyone. That He has accepted you. That nothing you've done can make Him love you more. And nothing you've done or will do can make you love Him less. Make, you lo- make Him love you less. Is that real to you? How gracious is your God? And finally, how worthy is your God? Do you see him for who he is? We sang those songs. What is there that you will not do for him? That's the question I began to ask myself. It's easy to say, I'll do this for you, Lord. I'll do that for you, Lord. But God, when you look at me, when you open my eyes so I can see you, the more I see the greatness and the awesomeness of God, the less the things become that I will not do for him. There's that old song we all sing, and haven't we sang it in churches? I surrender 10%. I surrender 10%. 10% to Jesus. I surrender. I surrender 10%. Lord, I want to see you. Can I see your worth? Can I see your hands? What you've done for me? John Leonard Dober and David Nitchin are names that may not be readily recognized. John was a potter and David was a carpenter. And in 1732, they became the first Moravian missionaries to the West Indies. You see, because of sea trade, a Western Indian slave came to Copenhagen. And in Copenhagen, he came to know Christ. And he had a burden and passion for his own people, and he died. And this carpenter and potter said, those people must hear about Jesus too. It's a new world discovered. They lost. We want to go. And the Dutch government said, and their own government said, no, you cannot go because we don't want any problems there. The only people who were allowed to go to the West Indies were slaves. And as you read the history, that's when John Dober and David Nitschman, against the advice of their family and friends and with a lot of tears themselves, sold themselves into slavery. And in that spring morning when the boat was leaving Copenhagen's harbor, they were in shackles. And they said this, 
May the Lamb receive His reward. They saw what Jesus Christ did, and nothing was off limits for them to do. They said, Jesus, you died on that cross. You bought your people. May you receive your reward. And they went to the West Indies, never to be heard of again, only to be seen through a growing church that God used them to start there. I don't think we need more training. I don't think we need more faith. I think we need a fresh surrender. We have to realize that even if we can heal incredible diseases, feed all the people, Jesus healed lepers and he fed 5,000, we still can be crucified. And I guess my question is, are you willing? Lord, open my eyes. I want to see my ministry. I want to see myself. I want to see you. And then I want to say, whatever, wherever, whenever, my answer in advance is yes, Lord. To that I surrender. Then we can go into the world. And God will change. Then... Our audience will be changed into an army. And spectators will become participators. But it will take us to say, Lord Jesus, we are surrendered. If you feel so inclined, we've got what we call, it's a purpose-driven covenant. You can give it any name. But I want to invite you at this time to stand with me. And if you feel comfortable, I invite you to read it with me. Because men and women, it is time. We live in a time where we say, Lord God, we're moving forward. If this is your prayer, read it with me. Today, I'm stepping across the line. I'm tired of waffling. And I'm finished with wavering. I've made my choice. The verdict is in. My decision is irrevocable. I'm going God's way. There's no turning back now. I won't be captivated by culture, manipulated by critics, motivated by praise, frustrated by problems, debilitated by temptation or intimidated by the devil. I'll keep running my race with my eyes on the goal, not the sidelines or those running by me. When times get tough, and I get tired, I won't back up, back off, back down, back out, or backslide. I'll just keep moving forward by God's grace. I'm spirit-led and mission-focused, so I cannot be bored. I will not be compromised, and I shall not quit until I finish my race. I'm a trophy of God's amazing grace. So I will be gracious to everyone, grateful for every day, and generous with everything that God entrusts to me. To my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ I say, however, whenever, wherever, and whatever you ask me to do, my answer in advance is yet. Wherever you lead, 
and whatever the cost, I'm ready. Anything, anywhere, anyway. Whatever it takes, Lord. Whatever it takes. I want to be used by you in such a way that on that final day, I'll hear you say, Well done, you good and faithful one. Come on and let the eternal party begin. Lord Jesus, that's the prayer of our heart today. Please apply liberal amounts of yourself on our eyes. We want to see. And Lord, we confess in our finiteness, we don't know what we ask. But we want to see. We want to see the ministry you have for us as you see it. We want to see ourselves and how you want to change us and how you have changed us. But, oh Lord, more than ever, we want to see you. Forgive us for not giving you the worth and the honor and the glory that only you are worthy of. We come today and say we love you. You've seen us. You know our heart's intent. Lord God, I pray for every individual here. We come with warts and all and say, here we are. Thank you that you want to use each one of us. Thank you for every man and woman here that are sacrificing their time. Lord God, bless them richly. Holy Spirit, fill them. Open their eyes. May they see how much you love them. And may we see how worthy you are. We come and we kneel down before you and say, we adore you. Oh, come, let us adore you. Oh, come. peace and may the lamb receive his reward through your work. God bless you.